This is Jim O'Donnell, and I'm with the Taos Land Trust, and we are here this morning to talk about birds. Don't go away. Birds are more interesting than you think, and we're going to tell you why. So, again, this is Jim O'Donnell, uh, Taos Land Trust, and I'm here with Steve Knox and Robert Templeton. And uh, I'm going to start off by just letting these guys introduce themselves. Uh, Steve, why don't you go ahead? He was, Steve was kind enough to drive up here this morning from Los Alamos just for this. I promised that I'd bring him donuts, and then I forgot. So, um, I'm that's, disappointed. He's disappointed. Yeah, he's, he may not be easy on me today. Steve, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm well from Los Alamos. I worked at the uh, laboratory there for over 30 years, but I'm retired now and uh, really spend uh, a lot of my time being an amateur ornithologist, I guess, and with photography. So mixing those two, you can do a pretty good job in terms of identifying the birds and, and importantly, the species and the count and participating in uh, the Christmas bird counts, which are very good uh, data points for the health and status of the birds. So, All right. In short. When you guys, uh, when, when, when I ask you a question, you guys answer, how about you start off like with this is Steve and this is Robert, just so uh, folks will know. Robert, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? <laughs> okay, I, well, I'm Robert Templeton. I live in Dixon. I've lived in Dixon for the most part since 1976 with a brief uh, time in Los Alamos and a brief time in Santa Fe. Uh, got into bird watching about 25 years ago. Uh, happened when my wife bought us a feeder for Hanukkah one year, and an evening grosbeak showed up. All right. And I'm going like, you got to be kidding me. And then we went on an Escanola Christmas bird count about a week later and saw a, well, what used to be called the rufous-sided towhee for the older people. Older birders. It's now called the spotted towhee. And those two birds, it was like, <laughs> all right. What else is out here? Incredible, incredible, beautiful uh, birds. So, so for neither, neither of you were were birds uh, being a fascination with birds wasn't something that that was that has gone on your whole life. This is kind of a semi semi recent fascination. Um, well, this is Steve, and my mother was a birder, and so we've had bird feeders and interest in you know following her around and her interest in birds for a long time. So, Okay, all right. Well, I'm, I'm kind of the same in a, in a certain way as I, I, I grew up in southern Colorado, and, and I, it did, birds didn't really occur to me till I was in my 20s, even my late 20s, uh, before I, I started getting fascinated with birds. And so I think a lot of folks, um, I'm kind of laughing a little bit because I think a lot of folks think, oh, bird watching, oh, God, that's a bunch of old fogies out there. It's, it's pretty boring. But what, what makes birds interesting, Robert? Well, there's so many things, so many things. Maybe for me, there's, there's two principal things. Oh, no, I can't say two. I got to say three, three principal things. One is that they are hunter-gatherers, and all of us have gone through evolutionary, in our evolutionary background, phases of being hunter-gatherers, and not that far back. And so these birds are wild animals. They're hunter-gatherers. They, they are only really fixed in position when they have a nest. That's the only time. 
And so you think, well, it's nesting season. These certain birds are here during the nesting season. Well, they are in the area, but they're moving around. So they only have that fixed time. The second thing for me is that they are our cousins. So if you look from an evolutionary standpoint, if you look closely at the evolution of life on Earth, they are our cousins. The bacteria in our gut are our cousins. We evolved from them. So we're talking about ourselves here. We're, ta- we're not talking about some separate entity. Well, that's interesting. Can you expand on that a little bit more, please? <laughs> I well, I can recommend a great read. Okay. Richard Dawkins' book, The Ancestor's Tale, takes, starts with humans and goes back to all the joining points evolutionarily, all the way back to the entities that started, got it all going in terms of the evolution Bacteria. Bacteria does everything that's done well and needs to be done. It's done by bacteria. Replication of, of DNA, all that stuff, it came from bacteria. Bacteria has invented the wheel, a free-flowing wheel on an axle. It's a great read. Read okay. it, and you'll, we- you, it'll change the way you view the whole world. Tell, uh-huh. tell us the name again. It's Ancestor's Tale. He modeled it on the okay. Canterbury tale, so it's these individual short stories. Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. Okay. The, the third one, I'll make it short. Yeah, go for it. Window on the Seasons. If you observe the birds closely, it, it just zeroes you in on the seasons because they are seasonal creatures. And even the birds that are, quote, non-migratory, are moving around based on the season. They're in different places at different times. I noticed down at Rio Fernando Park, where we have our office, the evening grosbeaks have shown up en masse in the past week, and there's uh, um, some chokecherry trees that are just, they're choked with chokecherries. <laughs> and the evening grosbeaks, especially the females, are, are, are just in there all the time. So they're really flocking and moving. And I... I associate the, that mass movement of evening grosbeaks with, with late August. They're yeah. migrating. They're, they're migrating. And where are, they, where are they going? They go south, south towards Mexico. You can, I can't put the distribution together right now. Well, but yeah, but they wander. They're, they the grosbeaks will show, wander. Yeah, they will show up here in the winter, too. Yeah, I've seen them we definitely have them on in the, the Christmas bird count. Uh-huh. True, okay. true. But they, but they wonder, and this flocking in the fall is, you know, during the breeding season, they're at war because they're protecting territories. But after the breeding season, they flock and, and go in these big, you know, like the pinon jays. Okay. Steve, well, let me throw the same question at you. What makes birds interesting? Their diversity, their capabilities. The, the, I haven't read the book that uh, Robert's talking about, but it sounds like it very interesting read because you actually see those things happening with birds i mean and in the sense that i think it's good to call them our cousins we are very dependent on on birds bird behavior bird movements bird health the diversity the numbers of them all reflect upon the health of the environment the whole ecosystem and so it's true, not trivial, but the canary in the coal mine is the birds and are the birds. And we can dramatically see the effects of uh, forest 
uh, loss of habitat due to fires or thinning or human humans too much too many humans and destroying bird habitats that presses down the bird populations presses down their diversity and so it reflects upon the whole health uh, to me of the ecosystem this is Jim O'Donnell of Taos Land Trust I'm here with Steve Knox and Robert Templeton we're at uh, KNCE True Taos Radio 93.5 and we're talking about birds this morning uh, Steve, can you give an example? Just before the show, we were standing outside talking about the a recent study out of the Pajarito Plateau, um, which is where Los Alamos is. And, and, and in terms of the birds being canary in the coal mine, so to speak, relate that to the, to the most recent study. Well, this was a, a long study, 10 years, to look at these um, sort of uh, changes in, in the number of birds, diversity of birds. And uh, this was conducted at Los Alamos. They have a bio, biosciences division, so you can pay people to actually do this and do a longitudinal study over that many years. And that's the time scale you need. And what has been found is that they're in the Pinon Juniper Forest, or PJs, which is the most widespread forest type in the West. So if this isn't isolated. This study doesn't just reflect on Parito. Uh, plateau or the Taos Plateau or New Mexico or Colorado. It reflects a lot on the whole West. And in this study, uh, they concentrated on areas of, of uh, this means like weekly visits and staying a particular time, a whole protocol to do this correctly, uh, reduce error in the data. But a 75% reduction in the number of birds and a 45% reduction in the number of species. So that's, that's significant. That's hugely significant. And uh, interesting thing, they studied burned areas. Uh, as many know, there have been uh, fires around Los Alamos, Parrito, Plateau. And, but then there's mechanical thinning. They said, well, we've got to mitigate the dangers of fire. So they were thinning. And this study ref uh, sadly reflected that even the process of thinning reduces the number of trees, reduces the species. And so they found very little difference between burned areas and thinning, thinned areas in the bird population. So it's, to me, it reflects on the human impact. And we place ourselves in those habitats, and then that impacts the birds. Right. And I, I don't know if most people know, but it's, it's really important for, for New Mexicans to, to, to understand that the Jemez Mountains where... Los Alamos, the Pajarito Plateau, Bandelier National Monument, um, is undergoing a, a massive ecosystem shift that's a subject for, a, for another radio show, but, uh, but the, these massive fires that have occurred in the Jemez Mountains uh, over the past 20 years, the, the forest that comes back after those fires is different than what was there before. So the whole ecosystem is shifting in uh, with, with, with climate change, for one, but that the birds are, are showing up as maybe an indicator of that ecosystem shift. Absolutely. They are, they, are, they, are, they are impacted first, and they have the mobility to move, and they're doing that. And, and they want to preserve their species, very strong uh, motivation there, and they will have the ability to move, but it does push populations out of areas pushes them further north and even there there's impacts because the num it can't support the number of birds uh-huh right and robert this is a, a maybe the same question but a little bit related but it, it, so 
we've heard why birds are interesting to you, but why should non-birders be interested in birds? Well, I think Steve kind of put some of it together mm-hmm. right there, that um, <clears throat> they are reflectors of the health of the habitat. Uh, there was recently an article in the New York Times that talked about medical students and who were doing ro- uh, rotations in veterinarian clinics and in, in, uh, working with vets, okay. even though they were training to be human doctors. And the article said... It, it used the phrase, humans, they, they, they're working, not, this time they're working on humans and animals. They separated humans and animals. And that's a false separation. It should be humans and other animals. But we in our culture, with manifest destiny, et cetera, et cetera, have a, a, a deep, deep separation between us and the animals that we share the whole thing with. And so uh, birds, I guess I would come back and say, for me, it is a reminder of who we were at one point in time, that hunter-gatherer thing. We were there. I, all I know is this. If you go out in your backyard and you spend one or two hours a day or a week or whatever, and start learning the birds and listening to the birds. And uh, you, you will see, first of all, the change of seasons. You will start seeing so many things that are right around you. It doesn't matter if you live right in the middle of Taos. The bird populations in the middle of Taos are spectacular. And the bird populations out anywhere you go, at one time or another in the year, they're spectacular. So... I just think that whatever birding is and whatever people might think birding is, if they just get out and do it, they will surprise themselves. I I completely agree. I can't remember. It was in my late 20s when I first started paying attention to birds, and I can't remember what sparked that. But but I noticed the same thing was, was by starting to watch the way birds move and the way they act and and what they do, I was... I was starting to see all these other other things in the ecosystem, just the way the leaves changed, the way the plants were growing, the way it was different than mm-hmm. last week. These kind of these kind of other things that I may not have noticed before. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have you guys know the author Jonathan Franzen. Um, he's an avid bird he, birder. He's the author of the Corrections, Freedom, Purity. Uh, some of these some of these books. I'm not a big fan of his of his. Uh, uh, <laughs> of his of his writing even though he's he's highly respected but he's a he's he's been an amazing advocate for birds and one of the things that he says is that the value of birds lies in uh the ability to reflect our ethical values mm. and i really mm. liked that he said that they are our last and best connection to the natural world and to the primeval world to what came before to where we came from which is what you were indicating robert Birds ask of us, what is our responsibility to the world? Any thoughts on that, Steve? <laughs> well, I, I like Jonathan Franzen. Uh, well, I like his books. But, <laughs> but we'll have a literary I, debate later. But well, that's, that's right. That's right. Not part of this conversation. 
I don't think we ever asked that question. I think he he's a very aware person in mm-hmm. his thoughts, and besides being, I think, the, you know, it's good writing, is that that uh, we we don't. Uh, understand the, uh, for the most part, people don't understand the impacts that we have on, or the degree of impact that we have on birds or other animals. Uh, birds are in somewhat more populous and they're e- much more mobile, but um, uh, you know the humans, for reasons Robert said earlier, are. Why don't we ask those questions? I mean, it's we're all on the same planet. Uh, a loss of any species is a loss to the whole. It's just a, a loss of any people or any person is a loss. And if we would recognize that degree with the animals, the animal kingdom, which which we are part, that that those losses and our actions impact that. And it's just like burning all the fossil fuels. Now, what are the future generations going to do? What are we going to leave them? That uh, and that's an interest. Again, the birds indicate that sooner, I think, than any other species because you can track them, and people do track them and see their movements. You can actually watch the movements during migration because people report the number of birds. And uh, Cornell Laboratory for Ornithology will put in videos to show these movements of birds. And so that is a huge real-time thing that you can see. And so those data are collected from all over the planet and that compilation, again by Cornell, can give you a visualization of what is happening and the changes in the migration pattern due to loss of habitat, mostly because of humans. Are we seeing uh, shifts in the timing and the and the location of bird migrations due to climate change? And I guess I could break that into two different pieces. Are one, are we looking at a shift in migration timing, and two, are we looking at a shift in overall habitat for certain species? Uh, this is Robert. Yeah, the, I think the, the answer is affirmative in all of those cases. There are studies about all of that, you know, where you have a, a migratory population that has always approximately the third week of April. I'm, I'm making up the details right. here, but, but there are details like this. They arrive at a certain beach, and there's a a hatch of, of a certain organism, and they feed on it, and then they go on. And then with the signals getting messed up for when to leave and when to go, when to come back, birds are leaving early, they're getting there, that hatch hasn't happened, and a lot of them die right there. So there's all that kinds of thing. There was an incredible study. You know, the, you know Jared Diamond. Mm-hmm. When he was a young man, he did uh, an ornithological study in uh, Papua New Guinea. And he studied two islands there, and they, they, the birds in the island, the islands, uh, the birds are segregated by altitude. So you have certain species at the lowest altitude, and then the next band, you have another group of species in the next band, and so forth, all the way up the mountain. And this study was repeated about five years ago by a couple of young ornithologists from, uh, from Cornell. And they went and repeated the study. And what they found was that on average, the, the band, the altitude band, had moved up 378 feet, and the birds at the top were gone. The birds that had, had, had been at the highest elevations, they just weren't there. 378 feet's a lot. It's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot. 
And so that was between that original study was done sometime in the 60s. So we're talking quite a few years. Right. But the changes, the changes there. It's profound. Yeah. Um, is there a, um, any examples that either of you could give from, uh, from specifically from northern New Mexico or southern Colorado um, about a, a species shift in either habitat or migration patterns? Well, this, this is Steve. There's uh, studies that coming out of uh, uh, Los Alamos uh, and Parido uh, Plateau, again, relevant to the much larger area than that, show the populations and numbers of two species, the hairy woodpecker and the western tanager, are both uh, declined. And I don't know where those birds have gone. Looking in my own neighborhood, uh, the Western tanagers spend less time because we didn't have any snow. There's very few uh, summer rains or spring rains, so there's not the food there for them to provide uh, suitable nesting to have a have a successful hatch. And so they've moved. And I suppose I, I really don't know where because I haven't studied that. But uh, traveling up to southern Colorado and all, they've been experiencing large droughts too. So where do those birds go to, in order to have? The probability, and, and they have this by instinct, uh, the preservation of their species, where can they safely nest and, and procreate their, their young? Right. This is Jim O'Donnell of the Taos Land Trust, and I'm here with Robert Templeton and Steve Knox, and we're talking about birds. We've got to take a short break, and we'll be right back. I wanted to go back to the discussion uh, with Robert and Steve about shifting uh, bird habitat and migration patterns. And Robert was about to say something before I so rudely interrupted with an ad. Go ahead, Robert. Well, there's a couple of species that are informative on this. Uh, one is the curve-billed thrasher, which uh, a decade ago was not in Santa Fe, and now it is ubiquitous in Santa Fe. It's everywhere. It's come up from the south? It's come up from the south. Interesting. Uh, and another species which... Uh, I have tracked, I'm sorry, I don't have the data with me, but I, uh, the white-winged dove at the, and not by, I'm going to, I'm going to just try to recall some of these numbers. White-winged dove, 1925, not seen above Las Cruces. So I've used Christmas bird count data to, to work this out. How, but, how far back does the Christmas bird count data go 1900 1900 so we, not in every area cor correct but it, but in a lot of areas we have data going back well over a hundred years on bird populations and migration in new mexico we go back 60 years i, I think the espanola count is the longest mm -hmm. i, I think that's count. something that a lot of people don't realize that mm -hmm. we have a we have a massive uh data pool to to pull from there are long long-term counts in las cruces uh roswell uh, Albuquerque, Española, you know, that are over 40 and 50 years. Wow. Very, very long counts. Okay. So at any rate, this white-winged dove has been moving northward. Its, its range has been expanding northward. Could be related to climate change, probably is. It could also be related to land use. But, I, you know, I haven't, I don't know of any study about why that's happening. But by 1970s, they're appearing in Albuquerque. By 1980s, they're appearing on the Christmas bird count in, in uh, uh, Española, uh, and then they in Santa Fe somewhere in there. They appear for the first time in uh, the in 
the Embudo area in the Dixon area, uh, I've forgotten the year, but they showed up something like 2005 or something. And then they showed up on the Rio Verde count, which is the Taos count, two or three years later. And they're, they're all still here and the populations are increasing. So there's an example of yeah that yeah. that yeah those are two really good examples I, and and how about with the curved bill thrasher and being showing up in Santa Fe is that is that climate related or is it a food source related are they combined I don't I can't say you know emphatically but I I suspect that it's climate related uh huh S- Steve any anything up in in Los Alamos area that's that's similar to that um. Well, the most exhaustive study is for the hairy woodpecker in the uh, western tanager. Right. There is, by the way, started in the last two or three years, uh, uh, two fellows, uh, Michael Smith and Mouser Williams, have restarted the uh, uh, a, a breeding bird atlas. So a lot of there's, Los Alamos has lots of birders, and so uh, people contribute in a study. Of that where the a large area is blocked out in, into a grid, and then you re, you record and report uh, breeding bird behavior, and uh, the birding uh, s- reporting system from Cornell has like t- 15 different categories, all the way from uh, G. I saw a singing male, all the way down to various degrees, down to uh, recently hatched fledging fledglings. Oh, okay. So you can get a real breakdown of all the way from the bird is there, there's courtship displays, there's territorial defense, there's feeding, and then the successful thing is there's recently fledged, recent fledglings. So those are all reported. So that's an ongoing activity. The last one was done over the whole of Los Alamos area um, over 10 years ago. And they were, they're trying, no, we're actually working uh, by these two gentlemen to re, uh, redo that and provide another set of good data. But it takes years just to establish another good data point. Right. I, I recall, we were talking about uh, pinyon juniper woodlands earlier. Mm-hmm. I, um, I recall 15 or 20 years ago out here um, in Arroyo Hondo area and uh, around John Dunn Bridge seeing these massive flocks of pinion jays exactly just enormous and you, i don't see them anymore ever that yes that's that is an impacted bird without a doubt is the pinion jay um we certainly watch that in the christmas bird counts uh, uh but they are very as as there's a synergistic relationship between the pinion jay and the pinions of course and this time of year that the pinions are really starting to put out the nuts uh, we're starting to see Clark's nut hat, uh, nutcrackers coming down from higher altitudes to feed on the pinon uh-huh. because uh, I don't know if the conifers, uh, well, the conifers, of course, were impacted by the uh, lo- loss of winter uh, snows. And so they can't, they don't have the sap, they don't have the water, they don't have the sap. So fewer pinon jays, but I'm seeing a lot more Clark's nutcrackers come down higher altitudes again, feeding on the pinons that are there. And I don't know where the PJs or pinions if Jays have pinion gone. Jays. Well, I think there's a, a large reduction. I mean, that's one. Mm-hmm. It, it, on if you go and look into uh, the endangered species lists, it's on the watch list. It's not on the worst situation. But it's I, threatened. It's threatened in some way. Birds of, of yeah. concern. Right. On the on the Rio Verde count, which the the center of that count is actually near uh, UNM LA. I don't know UNM Taos. Okay. And uh, uh, and that's so, the area down along the river, 
uh, towards Pilar? Well, it's a 15-mile diameter circle. Okay. So it goes seven and a half miles out is the radius all the way around that. From UNM Taos Clower Campus? Rough, roughly, roughly there, somewhere okay. out on Just that Just to give Mesa. people an idea. Uh -huh. So it includes Rio Verde, it includes Carson Mesa all the way out to Carson and stuff. In a, on a Christmas bird count about a decade ago, I was out on Carson Mesa. There's a road, if you go about a half mile past the post office in mm -hmm. Carson, there's a road that goes up into the forest there. Right. And I was walking up in the snow. I was walking up a, 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 a wash, and Pinon Jay started flying by. I recorded, I think, 450 on that yeah, day. Yeah, that's the kind of flocks and, that I used to see yeah, also. And I, I haven't, I don't see that numbers. I've the largest flock I've seen recently was 73, and that you know that's not like it used to be. And in, in Dixon, it used to be that in the fall there were constantly the sound of flocks of pinon jays flying from cornfield to cornfield right. where they were eating. And and also there was a birder that lived in Dixon for many years. Uh, before I got there, I crossed over with him a, a couple of years, and he reported commonly flocks of over a thousand pinon jays. And w like, when was that? Again? He left there. That was in the seventies uh, and eighties. Okay. Right. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was in the seventies. Okay. Yep. And we have had a reduction in the number of pinons from the drought that happened in the early 2000s. So we had this big drop-off in population. Mm -hmm. I don't know if folks know, but the, it, correct me if I'm wrong, the, one, of the, one of the things that I understand about this, this symbiotic relationship between the tree and the bird is the way the bird picks the nuts and then stacks them along a certain, I think it's the, what, eastern or, or northern side of the tree and, and has these big piles that where they, it's kind of their stash. And then they cover, um, the snows ideally come, cover up the stash of seeds, but that bird knows where his or her stash is and can go back to that stash. A lot of species of jays uh, can do that with remarkable uh, memory about where they've stashed either the peanuts you put in your feeder or the pinon nuts. And it's in the talking of the symbiotic relationship, you can't propagate or spread pinions as as well i mean by themselves i mean the apple falls near the tree but if birds feed on them and move them uh then you can move the whole species wired ranges and that happens all over the place right right and which um i want to go back to this the, the the issue of thinning here in a minute robert but um but I, that I, that brings up a um a question for me is is our birds smart oh yeah oh. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the the corvids, which are the ravens and crows, and the and the jays and the magpies, some of those uh, are they do test on them, and they uh, you know intelligence test, and they continually amaze the people. I mean, the results are still amazing about what how smart these birds are. I mean, problem solving uh, and making maybe an intermediate step in order to make the path easier next time. I mean, it's planning, uh, which takes intelligence. I mean, it's right. crazy. I, I lived in Finland for, for quite a number of years, and I, I recall um, uh, I would in the winter, I would walk down this one street in Helsinki to go to this place I was studying uh, to learn Finnish, and um, there was a, a huge raven, I noticed, one winter that would sit on this, um, on a... Uh, um, on a lamppost, and the lamppost was a solar-powered 
lamppost and he would put his wings over the um, <laughs> uh, over the, the solar powered yeah. thing and take them off and put them back and take them off. And it, it occurred to me after a couple of weeks that he's he's using that to heat. So he would cover up the sun panel, the solar panel, and the 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 uh, the light would think that it was night and it would turn on and he would he would heat. And, you know, this is like minus 20, minus 30 winds. And I it, it occurred to me that's just, that's brilliant. <laughs> Check out uh, go on YouTube and Google uh, blood cells chasing uh, viruses or bacteria. I can't remember which it is. I never can remember whether it's red blood cells or white blood cells that are chasing. Go check it out. It looks like a dog chasing a cat. So if you want to talk about <laughs> intelligence, it's right all the way down to the cellular to level. To the cellular level. Yeah. yeah it, it, any, give me some other examples of how birds are smart. Um, they, if, if a bird observes you observing them and they are trying to carry food to the nest, they will not go to the nest. Uh-huh. They will not go to the nest until you stop observing them. If you're back far enough and they're not, you know, it's not so keen, but if you're close in, we, we had some uh, Buick's wrens breeding right in the, under our portal this year, up in a, up over some latias. And um, the, this bird flew in, obviously he or she was planning to just fly to this tree near the nest, zoom in and feed the birds. I step out the door just before she or he arrives in that tree and that bird freezes uh-huh. and eventually leaves and didn't go back to that nest until I was gone. I mean, that's, that's a, they're, they're fully cognizant. Uh, try out birds that migrate from northern Canada, southern Canada, northern United States, 6,000 miles to Argentina right. every spring and every fall. How do they know the way? They know the way just like you would. If you if you were to to fly on Google Earth, you would learn the way. You would know. Well, that mountain range, you do that, and that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, up along the Arkansas River in southern Colorado near Pueblo, and I was out. There was a big, beautiful osprey, and I was trying to take pictures of of him, and he kept. Uh, he first of all, he stayed away from his nest, but he was really interested in me and he kept mm-hmm. coming extremely close um and just circling around and really was was watching me and watching me i ended up with some fantastic pictures because <laughs> he he was as curious about me as i was about him yeah. um this is jim o'donnell from the Talus land trust and i'm here talking about birds with robert templeton and steve knox uh, robert you wanted to talk a little bit more about the the, the thinning issue that Steve brought up on the Pajarito Plateau, thinning of the forest. Yeah, it, it, it brings up an interesting thing because the Nature Conservancy in New Mexico has a huge program right now of financing thinning in the forest. And the, the primary reason is because if, you, if the forests are too dense, the, the, then the crown fires are, you get a crown fire that's too hot, it kills everything. So there's an issue there. And I'm not I'm not uh, arguing with 
the study. I mean, there's no question about that. It's going to change the thing. It's just like irrigated acreages change the dynamic of what birds are going to be there, what's available for birds, all of that. So if you if you take a river valley without irrigation, it's going to be different than a river valley with irrigation. But the thing it brings up is the thinning is to, is one it increases the snowpack it increases the water for human consumption so you get into the issue of are we going to have humans in the habitat well humans are in the habitat but we often make this dichotomy between where the humans live and true nature which is out there in the forest without any humans living but, there, but, the, but the reality in, in the U.S. before the European arrival, every bit of the land was cared for by some native tribe. Everything was being cared for. Yeah, there's wonderful information about how the natives in New Mexico, the way they took care of the trees in the forest, beating them so that to, to get off the old growth and all, just many, many examples like that. So, you know, the, the, the National Park system we think of it you know we can get into i can't anymore sing the song this land is my land this land you know i I can't go there but if you look at the history of the national park the formation of the national parks and of course it's not much different than the history of the rest of the u.s it's about the extirpation of native peoples who were living in some reasonable balance with in the habitat with the other animals. And so it, it's a, it brings up a very interesting issue. Uh, uh, you know, are we, are we talking about what is a pristine forest? And is a pristine forest something that humans can only go walk in occasionally? Or is a pristine forest something that humans live in and, and interact in that way? Right. We've talked about this a lot um, the past few shows because uh, I used to be the the northern director for the New Mexico Wilderness Alliance, and I've long been a a big wilderness advocate. And that is a a law and a a way of looking at things that, that looks at nature as very separate from humans in a lot of ways. And, and, um, you know, I could go in a big, into a big defense about, uh, wilderness and the value of the, the, the wilderness act. But I think you're right. There's this issue of, of how we're not living in any sort of balance with the natural world. And I think about when people say, what's the value of birds, for example, um, well, how do you define value? Is we we in this society tend to think of value as um, as anything monetary, and it, it has to have a price on it, and it has to have human benefit. Uh, but there's values beyond that. Without a doubt, I I don't know how there's there are so many things happening on that advocate only for the humans, I don't know, other than education and awareness, asking people to become aware. One of the way to be aware is to be place interest in the birds in your own yard, to, to see those behaviors and see those family units acting in the way they do. They, they interact with the habitat. You can feed birds, feed hummers, uh, and they're only dependent on your food, maybe 25%, and they'll survive uh, well without our interactions, but they do benefit from the water, they do benefit from the seed, um, 
but the, the whole uh, thing there is just become aware of the impact that we have on the rest of the species. Uh, let you know, become more friendly with them. I was I was coming driving north out of Taos this morning in those big meadows off to the off to if I was driving north or off to the east, you know, beyond the Pueblo, and a gray fox ran across the road and made it on, and it was busy morning traffic. And wow. He, and so I was happy to see him there, but nonetheless, our roads and our traffic, uh, we wouldn't consider that important uh, if we lost one fox, you know, I don't know how many, uh, you know, there are, but nonetheless, I was s- certainly happy with him, and I think my more becoming more aware of birds and their presence and their behaviors makes you more aware of the whole the whole environment so from that standpoint to link all that together would be humans need to be more aware of the habitat and the other animals and the one that's everywhere is birds and they have such interesting behaviors you can feed them in your backyard after a while after they habituate to your being there uh, then they kind of hang out in certain parts of the yard if you hadn't brought the, brought the seed out. You know, at, at my place, I have to take the seed in because we have bears and they tear up everything. But that's okay. <laughs> they were there first. But the birds are kind of, uh, you know, where are, you know, you're, you're late this morning. We're out here and they're looking for where the feeders are, you know, the woodpeckers or the uh, the goldfinches or the pygmy nuthatches. I've actually gone out there uh, to put up the feeder, and I'm this big slow thing compared to a bird, and the, the, some of the pygmy actually land on me, you know, kind of, you know, to get the seed, you know, as I'm bringing it out. So they do, they know, <laughs> they move so quickly, I'm harmless. But right. they do get used to the interaction of you and with them. Uh, I mean, they're they're... It's not a personal relationship. They don't really care f- for me because, I mean, we're not forming deep friendships here. <laughs> I'm just providing a regular food supply, and they would like me to provide it earlier on some days <laughs> than, I, than I get out there with the food. Right, so, right. I notice it in my yard um, at my feeders when I've let, let the uh, – I haven't filled it up maybe for a day or something like that, and I go out in the morning to fill it up. There's a black cap chickadee who's waiting and watching and as soon as he sees me with those bags right. uh, he or she um, starts starts calling and chirping and and within a minute or two the goldfinches and everybody else is showing yeah. up um, but but that black cat cap chickadee is 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 watching me they kind of act irritated it, yeah you know, that's that, that is how it <laughs> where, <laughs> like, where have you been yeah yeah uh, so this morning we've been talking about birds, why they matter, what makes them interesting. Uh, I want to f- bring it down here a little bit to uh, Rio Fernando Park and the Rio mm-hmm. Fernando waterway that runs right through the middle of town. We've talked about the separation between humans and nature and animals and people. And we have this heavily impacted river that that runs or does not run, depending on the time of year, right in the middle of Taos. But in the sections where it is still relatively healthy, such as Rio Fernando Park, where uh, the Taos Land Trust headquarters are located, uh, you have a, a system that is supporting quite a, a, an array of, of bird life and, and other species right in the middle of town. Oh, yeah. So we've been doing the Christmas bird count in Taos 
for 14 years, the Aria Verde. Steve is actually the compiler for that. He, he does all of the uh, groundwork and getting it all together, finding people. <clears throat> the last five years, we have been on the Blackstone Ranch. So the Blackstone Ranch is a little further down from the Rio Fernando, but of course, plenty of water comes from the Rio Fernando to them. That whole area, there's water coming down in every direction right. into that area. It's a pretty fertile area. It's, oh, there's just, it, it's wet everywhere there. It's incredible. And so uh, after the count this year, we, it just kind of struck me, struck us, we were talking about it, that, wow, what is going on here? Right, Dolores Lane, the Blackstone Ranch, Callejon, Calle Callejon, is that it? Callejon, the one that cross, crosses over the is it Callejon? I, th I think it is, but I'm not yeah, quite sure. I think it is. Callejon. And then up into the Baca Park and the TLT property. Unbelievable array of birds right in that area. You know, really, bald eagle and snipe and all kinds of, you know, interesting birds. Wow. And so it really started hitting me that, wow, there's something really here that it would be great if it could be uh, protected. Protected meaning, to me, meaning at this point, kept in agriculture, kept, if it was kept as it was, it would be fantastic. Just as it is now. As it is now, it's right. incredible. Uh -huh. And because, it, you know, you don't go around asking people to, well, you can. There are there are some people in that area that do have conservation easements. Yes, there are. But but you also have acequeros that have been operating in that area for for centuries. Right. So and we were talking a month ago with Olivia Romo of the Taos Valley Acequia Association right. about the benefits of the acequias to uh, to to wildlife and habitat. Absolutely, absolutely. So I recently did some GIS work to look at all the inputs there, and. The whole area from Calle Medio, Camino de Medio, Camino de Medio, Camino de Medio. Camino de Medio. Camino de Medio all the way over past the uh, Lower Ranchitos Road, up that whole area up to uh, uh, the Hacienda, mm -hmm. the Martinez Hacienda. Incredible, incredible. And why wouldn't it be? It's the confluence of all the water in the watershed, basically. Right, right. You know, from, from Oroyo. Uh, Seco to for, to Rio Lucero to all the bigger ones. So we've only got about five minutes left, and I've got fifty questions. <laughs> um, but so I'll, so, so I'll just throw it out to you. What, so what do you think we should do? What what are, you you said you've given this a lot of thought, and you did some GIS work, and uh, what were you what what what's your thought on that? Well, my first thought really is to to bring awareness to the situation. To just that we bring, have something this special. In that town. we have something special. That we have something that has a, has an incredible bird life, and just make the people aware of it. I mean, the 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 two places that have conservation easements. There's some talk with the TLT uh, about having some events there to observe birds. Speaking of, I'll just interrupt real quick. On September seventh at seven a.m., we're going to have a bird walk with Meg Peterson. Um, that's going to start, Meg Peterson and Steve Knox, um, that's going to start in Fred Baca Park right adjacent to Rio Fernando Park. So give give the Taos Land Trust a call to RSVP for that, but uh, we're going to have 
uh, coffee, hot chocolate. I don't know about donuts. We'll see if we can get there. But <laughs> I'm not counting on the donuts. Yeah, I know at this point. But uh, but this is this is a good chance for people to come out with some experienced birders and see what we have right there. And yeah. Steve, you'll be part of that. Right. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That, again, is the more people can start learning about birds or have an interest in birds and more more they engage, at least I've seen this happen with lots of people, then they're drawn into that and then it gets you out into the into the morning. It gets you out during whatever. It, it gets you out uh, to observe the birds. You learn their behavior. You learn, a, 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 you can watch them. And then, you know, another plug would be that, uh, gee, we need always need help on the Christmas bird counts. It's wonderful to get out in the... <laughs> it's kind of cool it's, sometimes. It's great getting out in minus 20 degrees. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of that, um, you've got the Christmas bird counts. How can people get involved in that and any other bird counts? Because that's not the only bird count going on, right? I have a website called Rio Embudo Birds. Rio Embudo Birds. Yeah, dot, okay. dot org. And on that website, it talks about the Christmas bird count in detail. It has data from the... the Rio Verde count as well as data from the Dixon count. Okay. And it gives specific information about how the whole thing works and how people can connect. And even simpler and more broad, Robert has been doing this uh, this archival information, and he, he likes data, so it's excellent web, website. Very, <laughs> thank you very much. But if you just go to Audubon.org and, or just Google, you can Google simply Google CBC or uh, Christmas bird count, and you can okay. immediately go to places uh, or websites that will give you that information. You can give your location and find, uh, uh, for example, the Rio Verde, the one I'm a compiler on. You can find contact information for me and others, Robert okay. for Dixon, and me for Rio, Rio Verde, uh, which includes Taos. Okay. So Robert's site is org. .org. Rio and Budo Birds. I'm not making any money. Or gotcha. Uh, and then uh, obviously Audubon.org, which is the National Audubon Society website. Right. Right. I have one last thought. Go of, for kind it. of an overall view. Uh-huh. If I had to say one thing, what what will bird watching do for you? It will bring you into being in touch with land use. You will see how we are using the land. It's very instructive. That is a great point. Uh, this is Jim O'Donnell of the Taos Land Trust, and I've been speaking with Robert Templeton and Steve Knox, two birders. Steve, thank you for driving up uh, from Los Alamos. Glad and, to. Yeah, I really appreciate it, and thank you, Robert. Um, this is Jim O'Donnell of the Taos Land Trust. You can visit us at www.taoslandtrust.org.